you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of Malachi, chapter 4. If you're looking for that in your Bibles, you can find Matthew and then go like one or two pages uh, toward the beginning from that. Just one or two pages before Matthew begins, be in the book of Malachi. We'll look at the entire chapter of uh, 4 in Malachi today in this kind of in-between, between uh, ending First Peter last week and then going into our Advent series in the book of Isaiah next week. Uh, we'll be in Malachi chapter 4. It should be on the screen behind me if you aren't able to find that in your Bible in time. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 4 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Uh, we are not used to waiting. We're not used to having to wait for things anymore, are we? Waiting, the, the impatience that comes with having to wait, it's really kind of disappeared in a lot of our lives. I mean, I remember when I was little, uh, when my parents finally got internet. There was a time when we did not have internet, and then we did have internet. And what me and my dad used it for, the only thing that we used the internet for, was to check our fantasy baseball teams throughout the year. So we'd have to log on to set our lineup for fantasy baseball for that week, and it was a process. It was like five minutes of that sound, that if you've heard it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The ching dong, ching dong, dong, for five minutes, and you're just staring at a screen, waiting to eventually get the internet to come up. And it wasn't like the internet that we have now, where it just like happens. It was like you could see the top of the page, and then 30 seconds later, you'd see like another inch of the page, another 30 seconds later, another inch. You had to be patient to be able to get on it. We don't really have that experience anymore with anything that we do. Now, I have the internet in my pocket, and if it takes more than about three seconds for the page to load, I'm like turning the Wi-Fi off and on because there's got to be something wrong. It can't work like this. This isn't how it's supposed to function. We don't have to wait anymore. We order online. The food's ready when we get there. When I get my haircut, I check in before I leave, and by the time I get there, I'm already next in line wherever I go. We time our Walmart orders so that whenever I pull up into the spot, it's already ready, they run out to my car, and then I leave. I never have to wait for anything. Our podcasts, we listen to them on two times speed. Our audiobooks, we can't wait to get to the end so they have to read it faster for us. You go to see a movie in the theaters, and by the time you get home, you could rent it in your home. There's nothing that we have to wait for anymore. And the Christmas season is one of those things that I think that also applies to. I remember there was a time when it was like Thanksgiving, Black Friday, now it's Christmas. Now it's like 4th of July, school starts, now it's Christmas. You go to, you go to uh, Walmart and the seasonal section just skips from back to school to holiday Christmas items. We don't really have to wait for it anymore. 
That's how our calendars have kind of started to happen, that Christmas is just always here. But the official calendar, the traditional Advent calendar, it only gives you four weeks of Christmas. It says you will have four weeks of Christmas, and that is all the Christmas that you shall get. So every once in a while, whenever Thanksgiving is a little bit early, like it is this year, we have this one week. It feels like Christmas. You go outside, it looks like Christmas. We're looking forward to Christmas. We're talking about Christmas things. But according to the traditional church calendar, it is not yet Christmas. We're still waiting for it to happen. It feels like we should be there already, but we have just a little bit longer that we have to wait. And it hit me this year that that's roughly... Alan, is that my fault? Okay, cool. Uh, It hit me this year that that's roughly how the people of God must have been feeling. From the Old Testament to the New, there's about a 400-year period where they're just waiting. It feels like they're there. It feels like everything has happened. That like everything has been said, everything has been done. They're just waiting for the Messiah to actually arrive. But there's a period there where they just have to wait. And yes, in the Hebrew Bible that they would have had, Malachi wouldn't have been the end. It would have ended with Second Chronicles. They would have had a different focus, a different passage to, to look on as the last thing that they got from God before they had to wait for his coming Messiah. But in our new Christian Bibles that have been reordered, this is what we're left to wait with between the Old Testament and the New. This is how the Old Testament ends. Everything that's been pointing forward to the coming of Christ, and then now when he arrives, where we get in the book of Matthew. But between those two things, there's 400 years of just waiting, 400 years of just hoping based on what you've already been given for what was about to happen, for what was going to come. Today, we're looking at the last verses of the Old Testament in our Bibles. And from these verses in the Old Testament, I think we're going to be able to see three hopes that we should have in the waiting, three hopes that we should see and hold on to while we wait Three hopes for while we wait in our text this morning. The first hope for the waiting that we can see in our text today is that there's going to be healing for the righteous. There will be healing for the righteous. Look at the first three verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi is looking forward to the coming Messiah, who's going to bring healing for the righteous. But he makes clear before he gets there that where the righteous will receive their healing, the evildoer is going to receive judgment. The day on which this will come, it's burning like an oven. It is hot and ready. The arrogant, the evildoers, they're going to be stubble on this day. He's saying that they may think that there's something now, but whenever God's plans are fulfilled, they'll be revealed as chaff in the wind, as kindling, sawdust, a vapor that vanishes before the glory of the Lord. They may have their chance to perform their evil deeds now, but that's not going to last for forever. The day is coming that will set them ablaze. Its power, its heat will be enough to spark the dry and dusty death that they are into a fire that consumes them. God himself is saying this through Malachi. There's no doubt that this is part of his plan. This is most surely going to happen. 
when he's finished with them, the strong tree that they thought they were, that's going to be turned to ash. There's going to be no root left. There's nowhere else to draw any nutrients, no life, no future hope of another tree sprouting from the, rem- from the remnants. There's only ash remaining. The branch is gone, obliterated as if it were never there. And I get that I said we were talking about hope this morning, right? I said we're having three hopes for the waiting. But before we get to that hope, we have to see from where that hope comes. We have to see that there is something that we are hopeful against or apart from. These verses, they're supposed to get us through the interim between what was and what will be to instruct us, to tide us over until we can focus more clearly on Christ, the one through whom this great day comes. I said this is about hope, but verse 1 doesn't really feel like it has much of that in it. I mean, whenever you read that, I know I'm arrogant, right? I am an evildoer, right? It sounds like when I read this verse, it's talking about me. It sounds like I'm the one that is going to have this coming for me. And I think if you're being honest with yourself, that you'll see a picture of yourself in this verse, in the them that's going to be set ablaze. I mean, this doesn't sound, this doesn't feel as if it's very hopeful. And yet, I think there's a lot of hope here. In the same way that a fire alarm doesn't seem very hopeful, it brings hope if you heed the warning. When I was in college, my freshman year at the University of Arkansas, I lived in the biggest dorm on campus. There were about 1,000 people, 900 people somewhere in, that, in, their, in this dorm. And I lived on the ninth floor. As high as a male was allowed to live in that building, that's where I was. So with that many people, fire alarms going off, that wasn't like a weird thing. I mean, all it took was one goober to pull the switch. Whole building, fire alarm, everybody's got to get out. For one guy to smoke in his room, okay, everybody's got to get out of the whole building. So a fire alarm going off, it didn't really feel like it was that urgent when we uh, experienced it at that time. However, one time in January, I got like crazy sick like incredibly flew, I passed out on the floor of my dorm room sick. I was sick for days. I could not move. I could not get out of bed. And while I was sick, the fire alarm went off. So my roommate just turned to me and said, uh, what are you going to do? And I said, it's, it's fake. It's always fake. It never matters. I can't move. You just go. You go down with everybody else. If something crazy happens, call me, but don't worry about it. I'll be fine. So he leaves. He goes down nine flights of stairs, gets down to the lobby, and then something weird happens. It's like 15 minutes. Usually, you get down to the lobby, and they just send you right back up because it's, it's a fake. They just send you back up. 15 minutes later, he called me and said, uh, man, the fire department just got here. And I was talking to somebody else. They said they saw smoke on their side of the building. I said, oh no, that's not good. I can't move. And he said, yeah, what are you going to do? And I said, hope for the best. And that was it. I hung up. And the thought that kept going through my mind was that I was going to be on the news as the only one out of these 900 people who was so dumb that he didn't leave the building when the fire alarm went off that I heard the warning 
And because I didn't want to get out of bed, I was going to die in a burning building because I heard the warning and decided to ignore it. You see, the fire alarm brings with it a lot of hope. It tells you there's a fire so that you can avoid it. You can avoid that disaster of dying in the burning building. But it only brings hope with it if you actually hear and heed the warning. If you understand, because there's a fire, I've got to get out of here. And I think that's the same thing that we see in these verses. It was just like a toaster. Somebody put Pop-Tarts in the toaster, left it too long, fire alarm went off, everything was fine, I'm still here. But if I would have died in a burning building when 899 other people were saved because I felt kind of icky, then who's the idiot in that scenario? It's me. It's the one who doesn't heed the warning. For a few minutes there, I thought, this is how I'm going to die because I, wasn't, I was too arrogant to heed the warning that was there. So for those of us who have been arrogant those of us who are evildoers, this promise of coming judgment, this promise of coming destruction on a day that the Lord has chosen, it actually is a message of hope if you hear it. It's a message of hope because you now have heard it. I mean, we can see that the judgment is on its way and we can now avoid it. We can avert the disaster because we're aware of its coming arrival. But for the one who remains in this group of arrogance and evildoer, You should know, you should hear today that message, that judgment absolutely is coming. But for the righteous, for those who fear God's name, there's healing in the midst of this judgment. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out with, you go out leaping like calves from the stall. You see, the difference between the one who receives judgment and the one who receives destruction and the one who is healed in the Son is that one fears the Lord and the other doesn't. And we talked about fear of the Lord several times in our series through 1 Peter, that to fear the Lord rightly is to esteem Him, to have the, the proper reverence and respect for who He actually is. Malachi bounces the one who fears the Lord off the one who is arrogant and an evildoer, saying that those two things are opposite. Because if you are someone who actually understands who God actually is, then arrogant is the last thing you're going to be. I mean, a a mouse is no longer impressed with itself in the face of a lion. It can't be. So then whenever you understand that the difference between you and God is infinitely larger than the difference between a mouse and a lion, then what arrogance is there left to have? And because that God is holy, what evil are you going to commit to his face? The one who fears the Lord, he has a right understanding of who he is, a right understanding of where he fits. So there's no way that that could lead to arrogance or evil because God is so great and so holy that to sin against him or to think that you're really something in light of him shows that you just don't understand who he actually is. But notice where the healing comes from in this verse, that the son of righteousness rises with healing in its wings. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. But we have to see here that the healing comes from something external to the one who fears the Lord. He doesn't say that the one who fears the Lord has earned his healing, that the one who fears the Lord has healed himself. 
He says when the sun of righteousness rises, when that day of judgment arrives, that when the morning of the day of God's fulfilling, fulfillment of his plan breaks upon the earth, that on that same day that the evildoer is burned, the one who fears the Lord is healed in that same instance, in that same plan. Like a flower that's made it through the night. When the sun hits its petals, it becomes the fullness of what it was supposed to be. It's nourished, it's sustained and strengthened by the sun's presence. It's healed in that presence. I think that shows us too that only broken things, only things that are hurt, only things that are less than, that's what gets healed. You see, the one who fears the Lord, he's not perfect. He hasn't earned this salvation from judgment because of his perfection. But he receives healing in his imperfection because the son of righteousness has shown on him. I think that's another piece of where we find the hope in this verse. It's not the perfect who avoids being set ablaze. It's the healed who is saved. You see, you don't have to have nailed everything throughout your whole life. You don't have to have avoided arrogance and doing evil every single day. You don't have to already be healthy to get the healing. If you're going to avoid the judgment, you just have to have been healed by the Son. And when that healing arrives, for those of us who receive it, it restores us. It fulfills us. We, we go out like calves leaping from the stall. We're rejuvenated. We're reborn in his healing. We're equipped and empowered to enjoy the fullness of life in the rays of the God whose righteousness itself was enough to heal us. So that's part of where I see the the promise and hope of Christmas coming through so much in these verses. That that season that we're waiting for, that season we're looking for, that thing which brings healing to us is something that we can have hope in even now. The sun of righteousness which rises and heals us in its power The son of righteousness, which has enough righteousness to draw us into it, to give us that righteousness, which allows us to be healed rather than consumed in judgment, that's Christ. I know the O and the U are different in your verses, but it's talking about the Messiah through which all these things come. That when he rises in righteousness, that's when we're healed. He is the son of God, the righteous one. He, the one the prophets foretold. He, the one we're celebrating in the Christmas season, he came to enact God's righteousness in his perfect life before dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. And he took our sins, our arrogance, our evil doing, and he died with it before rising again in his righteousness, with his life, with healing in his wings, with enough to spare to give to his people by grace through faith for all who repent and believe in his gospel. You see, the end of the Old Testament in our Bibles, it's the hope of Christmas for us. That we can be healed by the righteousness of the one who will rise for us. That we can be saved from the judgment that we rightly deserve. That is the hope and decree of God for his people. That we would be saved while the wicked who have not received that righteousness perish. While they are consumed, if you've placed your faith in Christ to be saved, where they're turned to ash... You trample on that dust. When God acts to bring forth his plans, the ones he has saved no longer have to live in fear of the one who does evil. 
the first hope we have for the waiting, for the the period of in-between as we're looking forward to Christmas but not there yet, is that there is healing for the righteous and that we can be, we are righteous in Christ. But there's another hope in the waiting, that there is order in the interim. The second hope in the waiting is that there is order in the interim. There's order while we wait. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. He says to remember the law of Moses because this order that exists in the interim, that's not new. It's not like a new thing that now you're going to have an ordered existence as you wait for the Messiah to come. See, God hasn't left us wondering how to structure our lives. Hasn't left us wondering how to please him, how to be obedient as his newly righteous people. Because he's given us his law. He's told us in the past what he expects of us. But let me just emphasize here the lens through which I'm looking at this text. In this period, right before Christmas, in this text, which is the last word we get before we get to the revelation of Christ in the New Testament, in our Bibles, we have to see his coming as the culmination of a story, as the next step in what was already foretold to happen and prepared to happen, and now as the culmination, the climax of what is happening. That's why our Bibles are reordered from what they had, which ended in 2 Chronicles, to what we have, which ends in Malachi. That's why we end now with this text, because it's pointing explicitly to the coming Christ that we're waiting for. The whole Old Testament, it points to his coming. Not just this text, not just the prophecies that we'll look at in Isaiah in the coming weeks. It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. And that matters for us today, too, because we have to remember the story of God, not just in the Old Testament pointing toward the New, but also in what he did in the New Testament for his church that continues today. We have to see within that story of his church that there were faithful Christians between Paul and your grandmother, and that matters. You see, we Baptists, we tend to be intentionally ignorant of church history. We tend to think, whether we'll say it or not, that there was the early church that was right, and then there's us who are right. And between that, there was like 2,000 years of people messing up until we showed up. That's sometimes how we tend to think. We skip from Jesus to today. Pay no attention to the God behind that 2,000 years in between. But I think part of the remembering that we need to do here is to remember the faithfulness of God in all of time. He is always been faithful to enact his plans in the Old Testament, through Christ in the New Testament, through the Spirit in the church, and to sustain and build his church since then. We have to remember our roots, the foundation on which our beliefs are built, because we didn't just wake up one day believing what we believe. We didn't just wake up one day, read the Bible, and become Baptists. We are standing on the shoulders of saints for thousands and hundreds of years to get to where we are today. And I think they have things that they can teach us, things that they can show us, that if we're coming up with something new, it's probably something that was bad, because we've had good for 2,000 years. But in the verse itself, it's encouraging us to remember the law of Moses. Now, as we talked about in our Ten Commandments series over the summer, we don't just copy and paste the Old Testament law into today, into our current day. Christ has fulfilled and transformed this law for us. But the God who gave that law to us, he doesn't change. So the order that's found there, the order that's found now in the interim, 
The order that's found while we wait for and look forward to the coming of Christ, it's found in the, the rules, the laws, the decrees, the instructions which God has given to his people. You see, we are able to make it through the tumultuous present by remembering the stable instruction of the Lord in the past. He says that this instruction, this law, was given for all Israel. It's given, as we would say today in the pattern of Peter, for all of God's people, now the church. If we're looking for how to order our lives, if we're looking for how to live as God has intended for us to live, then the law, the instructions and decrees of God, that's, I think, where we start. Now, those instructions, they look different in some instances, We occasionally have to take the the principle from the text rather than just being able to copy and paste it, but it's absolutely still relevant for us. It absolutely still instructs us in some way. We are nearing the end of 2023, which means we're approaching the beginning of 2024. And with that, often comes, for a lot of us, new Bible reading plans. Now, as a church, I've always encouraged us to do the same one together. I think that's a good thing to do. In the next year, we're going to be looking at a chronological plan, which I'm excited about, and you guys should try to do with us. Uh, But most people who start a Bible reading plan, no matter which plan you do, statistics say that you've bailed by the time you hit March. That it hits March, you're done. Now, there's a few reasons for that. Sometimes it's just like the high of a new year, a blank slate, I'm going to nail this with the letdown of lesser will in February, in winter, in the dark, and then you just kind of bail. That, that's part of it. I think there's also part of it that by the time you get to March, you're in Leviticus. You're in Numbers. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, and correcting and training in righteousness. Some of that profitability is easier to find than others. A lot of us, when we hit that section, our eyes glaze over. It's all willpower. We don't know what to do with it. We don't understand it. We don't know what it means. So we bail. We tend to hit that section of the Bible, lose our momentum, and we never pick it back up again. But there is something for us in the law of God. There's something for us in the Old Testament. There's something for us in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus, and Numbers. Even when it takes some work to see, the gospel's there. You can find it in those places. You can see the holiness of God in those places. You can see what he values, how he provides, how he instructs, so that we aren't left to our own devices, so that he's given us instructions for how to live our lives. No, it's not written to us directly in the same sense that most of the New Testament was. It's not binding on us directly in the same same instance that the New Testament is. But it is God's instruction to all Israel. So now, you who are the new Israel, I think you can still get something from it. Don't bail in March and try to pick it back up whenever you hit Matthew in July. Keep going. In some ways, the weeks between Thanksgiving and really New Year's, depending on your schedule, depending on your family, your traditions, it can feel like you're in the middle of a Mad Max movie. That you're on a road and you just got to keep the pedal down and try to get to the end. That there's stuff going on all around you, there's craziness all around you, but you just got to keep going. Because that's the only way that you're ever going to end it. It's a post-apocalyptic wasteland filled with empty shelves, sails, dinners, movies, darkness, chaos. You never know what your plans are. 
You never know who your plans are with. You lose track of all the money in your bank account. You look up and it's just gone. It was spent on what? No one knows. Everything's cheaper, and yet somehow it costs more for you to do everything that you did. You're on this hamster wheel just trying to get to Christmas, it feels like sometimes, because then it's all going to stop. Then you can finally take your breath. But God has given us instruction and order for how to await the coming of his son, for how to order our lives, for how to be the kind of people we're supposed to be as we wait. When our lives are built around the instruction and decrees of God, we can have order in the waiting for Christ to come. We can have order in the interim as we look forward in hope to the day in which he arrives, because with his arrival comes an end to the chaos. With his arrival comes the beginning of healing for his people. We can have hope as we find God's order in the midst of whatever chaos we're surrounded by. And that brings us to the final hope for the waiting. We can have hope in the waiting because there is a chance to turn now. There's a chance to turn while we wait for the coming of Jesus. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We have the benefit of reading this verse now, not then, after Jesus has come the first time. So I I think we're in between the two things being talked about in this verse. The prophet Elijah, who was to come and turn the people's hearts, he is John the Baptist, the one who came to prepare the way before Christ arrived, the one who came to preach a message of repentance that Jesus took up. But the great and awesome day of the Lord, the fullness of that at least, is something that we're still waiting on. I mean, in one sense, the coming of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, that could be considered the great and awesome day of the Lord. I think it is in some sense. But I think it's better to understand this day as the day that we've been seeing in this text, when the the wicked are judged, when they're burned, when the righteous receive their healing and joy. I think the day that verse 6 is talking about is the day of the final judgment of God. So we're, we're in between here. John the Baptist has come, but Jesus has only come once. But still, I want you to notice what God is doing. He sends his word before he sends his judgment. He sends his prophet before he sends the judge. The message of John was of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's the same message that Jesus had to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The fact that we are after the first part of this verse and before the second part means that those messages of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, they're still in effect. The word of God, the call of God, it's still going forth for you to repent and believe. It's still going out to save his people. There still is a chance for the forgiveness of sins, still a chance for you to turn from your life of sin and toward the perfect holiness of Christ for you to repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message that God has given to his people. And that message is still in play. You, right now, you can repent and believe today. You can turn today. But how good of God to give us this word and hope of warning before he sends his judgment. I mean, judgment is always just. It can come at any point. 
It didn't need a warning. And yet he gave it all the same. He gives it all the same. Not just that he's told us that we need to be saved and how we might be saved, but that he keeps waiting. There were 2,000 years between these two things that are happening in this one verse. The great and awesome day of the Lord, it's not finally arrived, but it will. So heed his words today. I mean, he's given you his message, his gospel, his good news. It's been just given to you, preached to you through the Bible, through my words today. For you to respond in repentance of faith. He sent his word first. He says some people, they're going to heed that word to repent. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The message of Elijah, the message of John, the the message of Jesus, the one gospel that has always been true and is still going out, it's still being preached, it's still effective. The hearts of fathers, even today, even now, are turned toward their children. The hearts of children turn toward their fathers from their message. People are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and responding. But just because people are doesn't mean that you are. So are you? I mean, we live in the interim. We, we await the day of the Lord, just as we're waiting for the Christmas season to actually begin next week. So now is the time for your heart to hear the message and turn. Now is the time to repent of your sins and believe. The verse says that he will do this. It says, someone is going to hear this message and turn from their arrogance, from their evil doing, and toward the son of righteousness. But what you have to ask yourself is whether that's you or not. Someone will, but are you going to? Have you already? Because destruction will come. He's coming in judgment in his great and awesome day. And if you don't turn, then that decree of utter destruction, it includes you. You are the arrogant. You are the evildoer. You are the one who has not been and will not be healed. But you could be. His judgment of the wicked, it won't change. His destruction of the stubble, it won't change. But whether you are included in that destruction, that depends on your response of faith to the gift of faith that is extended toward you right now, today. I've been talking today a lot about the the hope that we have while we wait for Christmas while we wait for the coming of Jesus, even just the season of that coming. This week, it's the in-between. It's, it's basically Christmas. feels like Christmas. I watched a Christmas movie last night, but it's not quite there yet. It's not quite the season yet. Not traditionally so, not officially so. But even before the season of hope gets here, I think we can have hope already in the waiting. There is hope that comes to those who heed this gospel message. There is healing for the righteous, but only for those who have been given the righteousness of Christ through repentance and faith. There's order in the interim, but only for the ones who hear his words, his law, and obey it. There is a chance to turn, but what good is a chance if you never seize it? What good is a fire alarm in your building if you never go down the stairs? You can have hope as you wait for the awesome day of the Lord today. He's calling you to repentance and faith today. It's my prayer that you'll heed that call. Let's pray.
God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people, to to read, to hear your word together. Thank you for the hope that we have in the waiting. That as we look forward to your return to the great and awesome day of the Lord, that we can have hope now based on the first coming of Christ, based on the season that we're ramping up toward. Help for us to focus on that hope in this time, in this season. To know that, yes, we are waiting, but there's so much that you've already given us. There's so much we've already received, so much we've already seen. There are some things we have to wait for, but there are other things that you've already shown us. Help for us to trust those things, to believe those things. Thank you for the gift of Christ in this season. Thank you for the work that he did on the cross to save us from our sins. Thank you for the new resurrection life that you've given to him, which he gives to us. Help for us to heed that call. Give us the faith, the belief, to repent today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.